Amen, amen. Good evening, Wednesday evening to you all, and we welcome you here and those online. What a blessing it is to be able to, the Lord allows and gives us opportunity to come together midweek to, to be ministered to, and we get to worship our God and together in unity is a beautiful thing as brothers and sisters uh, will be doing this for eternity. I uh, hope you're looking forward to it because I'm certainly ready for that as well. Hey, just wanted a quick announcement as you're opening up to 1 Samuel 16. Uh, we'll just take one chapter tonight. It's a long chapter, a long read, but um, it's a really pivotal, uh, especially in uh, chapter 16 and 17. But one announcement, a Harvest Festival. Uh, we decided to do that on October 29th. Um, it'll be a Sunday. And so directly following the church services, uh, we're going to have, like we did last year, uh, lots of things going on for the kids, Lord willing, inside and outside if the weather's good. Uh, we just sort of, we bring, everyone can bring a, a, something to share. We share in the meals and, and, and do that. We're also, donations are needed for like bags of candy and uh, uh, pumpkins and gourds, anything like that. And uh, we'll have a fall menu sign up out there on the information desk for you to sign up. So we, we kind of target the foods to bring that's kind of around that chilies and soups and those kinds of things. So uh, more questions or anything like that, ask, I see uh, Steve and Julie uh, kind of leads that, uh, that effort there. So that's the flyer here. So grab a flyer, make sure that and spread the word and, uh, and invite a family. It's a beautiful Sunday for the service, but then followed by the grandparents and others and friends can be part of watching the kids having a great time as well, celebrating what God has provided for us in our minds to be focused on God's provision and his faithfulness in our lives, and that's the time of harvest that we want to celebrate. So that said, hey, we're going to be turning Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let us pray. We'll get right into the study this evening. We thank you. Father, thank you for this uh, building that we can gather here and, uh, and technology to be able to reach out to those who cannot physically be here. And we thank you that we can come and worship you in song and worship you in, in our, our just being with one another and encouraging one another in our walk, Lord. And there's a lot of highs, a lot of lows that goes on in our lives. And each day, we just never know. That's why we trust in you each day for our lives because we don't have control over or a guarantee for tomorrow, Lord. And so we want to live for you here, pleasing you in all the things, living holy lives uh, for you. And so we come here to be nourished and equipped, yes, and to draw, but just a form of worship to you. We just want to deep, go deeper in our love and our passion for you uh, in all the things that we say and do in our heart, Lord, to reflect not just our words and our actions, but I mean every aspect of our life be in line with what's pleasing to you, in line with your word. And again, Lord, as we open up your word, Holy Spirit, just illuminate your word to us this evening. Teach us the things we need to be taught uh, individually, but also even as a body of believers here at Calvary Chapel, North Country. We just thank you for your, your grace and your mercies, your mercies every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Think about Samuel. 
Think about Samuel and the state he finds himself at this point in his elderly life. Think about the things that God has called him to do in his life. And as he comes to the end of his life, the end of this ministry, there's a lot of reflection that can take place on what you've been doing for the Lord or what you have not been doing for the Lord. Israel had rejected Samuel's leadership at this by this point. They decided to, to, to do what is right in their own eyes and to, to look at, out to the world and, and look for worldly ways and blend things with the world and said, we want a king like the rest of the nations. It didn't matter what God said. It didn't matter what God's leader that God appointed over Israel said. They want to do what they want to do because that's what they felt like doing. And God allowed it. They thought this was good. But as we know the scripture, we know this was not good. God allowed it was not. It's a good thing. A lot of people sometimes miss, see that, oh, I was able to do this. Of course, then that must, God must be okay. He would have closed the door, right? No. If you're persistent to do something that's outside his will, and you keep pushing forward regardless, okay, I'll step aside here. Let's see what's gonna, how this goes. He knows how it's going to play out. Watch out. We'll figure out how it's going to play out. But the nation rejected Samuel's leadership because he was too old. Did not want his corrupt sons to succeed him. So it was like, hey, you're out. Your sons are out. We want a king like the rest of the nations. It made sense to them. But they went clearly against God's word. King Saul was guilty of disobeying God's clear commandments. The the guy that Samuel came and anointed because God said to do that and allow that to happen. He anointed and he was to mentor him. His, his spiritual leadership was supposed to help him to grow in that aspect of his life. Not as being king, but spiritually, if you're strong, you can do these things that God's called you to do like being a king. So what happened to his, his, his student that he was supposed to help him? King Saul decided to just go disobey God. He wasn't listening to his mentor. The leader, the spiritual leader of the nation, he wasn't listening to anything he was saying. He disobeyed clear commandments. Also lying about what he had done, and because of these sins, he had forfeited his throne. Samuel had been broken fellowship with Saul because of this relationship. He had to separate. He couldn't go see him anymore. He was at, that was it. You know, and, and it grieved him, the scripture says, we studied it. It grieved him. And we will see it again tonight. Samuel must have felt like a dismal failure as a father, as a spiritual leader, as a mentor to the first king of the nation of Israel. Complete failure. And we will see that there is a time to mourn, Ecclesiastes 3.4. There's a time to mourn of loss. But there is also a time to act, Joshua 7.10. And for Samuel, that time had arrived. And in spite of how he felt about himself, and then reflecting upon what he didn't do right in so many aspects of his life, Samuel's work was, wasn't over yet. God wanted him to anoint his new king, God's new king, King David. So we start here in 1 Samuel 16, 
And let's just take the first three verses here. And he, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. I mean, there must have been a lot of emotions going on there. For your, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So when you look at the scripture, here's a time to mourn. But then there's a time to get up and to move on. And he says, I have, a, I have a plan for you still, Samuel. I need to use you as a vessel to go and anoint a new king, my kind, his, his new king, him, my new king. Not the people's king, not the people's choice, but God's choice. And it's by doing that, you're going to do, and Samuel would have triggered on that command. I need you to command you. I need you to go get your horn, fill it with oil. And he knew exactly what that meant. God's still going to use me. Oh, no. God's still going to use me. <laughs> it's, like the, it's like a roller coaster. <laughs> no, there's a, there's a highs and there's a lows on that, that, that commandment of God's going to still use me. But Samuel knew God wanted to anoint someone else as his new king over Israel. See, God will never allow his work to die with the death or failure of a man. If it is God's work, it goes beyond any man. Perhaps Samuel was paralyzed by fear, the fear of the fact that it's lingering. Is Saul coming after me at any moment in time to take my life? But God was not paralyzed. God is never paralyzed. We may get paralyzed by fear and uncertainties and situations of life. But that's why we run to God, because God isn't ever paralyzed. He has the ability to give you the strength, the power of the Holy Spirit to get up and to move and move beyond the morning. Beyond the situation, beyond the, the feelings, beyond these things that hold us back from doing what God has called us to do. How can I go? I mean, we can understand Samuel's fear. If you know someone has the ability to kill you, and, is, and they're only about 10, 15 miles away from you, you have probably a little bit of a sense of probably realism there. So there isn't any doubt that Saul would consider this, the fact that Samuel's now isolated and walked away from him like a treason as a king. What do you mean? I'm still a king. No, what do you mean I'm not anointed any longer? God has left me in all these things. He could have these, these sense of fear. But what happened was, there's a period of time that Samuel had an excessive mourning over Saul 
and, and it introduced an element of fear and unbelief in his heart. That's what, that, that's what happens when we're anxiety-filled in this feel of failure, feel of, of, of fears and stuff. It always will lead a person to unbelief. If their eyes are not staying upon the Lord and trusting in God and His, His strength, His protection, and His provision, and His calling. See, Samuel didn't have anything to worry about because God promised in the scripture, I will show you what you shall do, shall do. I'm in control. I wouldn't be taking you, Samuel, and taking you into the enemy territory or going in those directions if I'm not in control and I have a purpose here. Yet we always have to remember, I don't think I should go there, but if God says to go, he's got it figured out. And so you have to take that step of faith. But I don't see how that's going to fit. What do you mean I have to go or stay here or whatever? Yes, God has a plan and he has it under control. See, he says here, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. See, he, Samuel knows years prior that Israel rejected the Lord as a king and they wanted that human king instead of God and God gave them that human king and they gave him the most perfect picture perfect king the tallest of all the best looking of all the strongest of all I mean he was just absolutely perfect king according to any other nations but God still was on the throne And he will crown whoever he pleases. Whoever he pleases and as he ever pleases. I mean, he, he is in control. See, the simple fact that God did rule Israel. They could recognize his rule. They could submit to it. They could enjoy the benefits of having God be the uh, rule over them. Or they could resist his reign over Israel and suffer because of it. And they did suffer because of that. The Lord is God and King and will always triumph. And we have to always remember this. Regardless of how you feel. But my, but my attitude matters a great deal as it affects my ultimate destiny. Our attitude today does matter. We don't have to fear for the future. When we know that God has provided for himself even leaders to raise up to lead appropriately according to God's ways. And you might be one of those leaders that he's raising up to, to lead his people. See, in some unlikely place, God is raising up leaders for his people. Always has. And he always keeps them obscured or hidden until the right time when he will raise them up for the moment of that moment of time. And so many times we'll sit there and say, oh, thank God you were here. How did that all? Oh, it's a miracle. God had it all planned out for that person to be right where he needed to be.
But he says to Samuel, you shall anoint for me the one I name you, name to you. I'm going to name this person. I'm going to pick this out. No, don't, don't be asking the people. Don't get the, don't get the congregation. Don't get the nation to, to draw names and do some committees. and say No, no, no. I make the decision who's going to be king. So don't listen to anybody else and try to sway you to think this is a better person. And we will see a sense of that in this selection here in Jesse's family. But he says, it's a time for king for me. This king is going to be mine that I'm going to point out. He's the new king that I say. Verse 4, so Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming. And said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he goes to Bethlehem. Anytime you see the word Bethlehem, that should trigger. There's a lot of things attached to the name Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the small town not very far from Jerusalem. And it was the home of Ruth and Boaz, from whom the family of Jesse descended from. And it was the hilly, grain-growing region with lots of small fields carved all around in the hillsides. Sleepy kind of little place, not the big city. But David himself would make Bethlehem a very famous place. And so would Jesus, the son of David, who would be born there as the scripture promised in Micah 5.2, Matthew 2.6. Bethlehem means, the name means the house of bread. And it is, where, it is there where the living bread from heaven came to dwell in human flesh. Very significant town. Now, the elders got a little, little, little squirrely here because they know what happened. You remember the last time we were talking about Samuel, he just hacked up the king. King Hagag, he just cut him right up in pieces. He, they understand his relationship with the King Saul at the time. In their minds, he's still kind of the king. And so they're like, you're going to come into our area. You're going to cause some problems. Are you going to be hacking people up? Or are we going to worry about Saul getting involved here? What, what are you coming here? Are you coming peaceably? And he said, of course I'm coming peaceably. I'm coming to sacrifice to the Lord, which is true. But it wasn't his only thing on, it was on his agenda. Because when you had the sacrifice, they then had a, made a big meal. That big meal then would, of course, bring and introduce kind of inconspicuously people of that area. Jesse and his sons were invited to that meal. To witness that sacrifice. So that Saul and all of Saul at that point would have still had many scouts, many people, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, not tattletales, what's a more common name now? You know, <laughs> say again. <laughs> oh, that's a, well, I won't repeat that one. I'd have to ask him to edit it out in some way. No, so th there are people who would be watching over and telling. King Saul, who and where all his movements were going on. 
And he probably knew that. No wonder he was fearful. He was being tracked and watched by the, his, the CIA, FBI. You know, that would be some of the more common terms maybe today. Tracked. Tagged. Followed everywhere you go and who you're talking to. He probably didn't have a sense of freedom. As Samuel didn't. But he was able to go and justify there. And they accepted it and brought that in. And notice that they had this, uh, this moment here where they were coming to do that sacrifice. And look what happened in verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab, Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, <laughs> this is the first name of the first son, the oldest son of Jesse here. Eliab, he must have been the biggest and the strongest and, and everything. This is the number one child. Of course, this must be going to be the next king, Jesse must have thought. So did Samuel. Look what happened. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have refused him. Oh, you read that and you go, Samuel, you're looking on the outward. You're looking at his looks. I know he's big. looks good. I mean, he looks strong. Stature, appearance, man. You're thinking this outwardly. You're not looking based on the outward appearance. You should be looking at what God says is going to be the inward man that he's looking for. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, that's, that's how God works. And we have to get that, underline that, highlight that, remember this truth. We may go by sight, but God says we need to go by faith, faith in him and him directing every single step and every single decision in regards to what he wants us to do clearly in line with his word. When he speaks... We listen and we do. And so we don't go by feelings of what you're seeing and appearance and all these other things. Don't go by that. That's not how God works. The Lord looks at the heart of a man. And so Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah passed by and he said neither has the Lord chosen this one thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel and Samuel said to Jesse the Lord has not chosen these well we know that they had eight sons and it's interesting as you go through it did he name all seven of the other sons what, what happened to maybe one of the one of the sons here but we look here and we see that Samuel was just looked at the oldest and said, hey, he looks good, he's stature, he's everything, he looks strong. I think that people are going to accept him as a because he looks like a good choice. No, it's not a good choice. Don't look at the appearance. Don't look at his height, stature, his good looks. This is not what I'm looking for. None of those sons have the right heart. A heart that a king of God's people that he's, God is looking for. He's looking for a leader that has the right heart in line with God. 
And he's refused them all. Because for the Lord does not see as man sees. So both of these, the kind of these statements, it's a statement of fact that God has given to Samuel and in exhorting them in a godly, the way that godly thinking needs to be, you need to rethink how you think in regards to your making your decisions. But they were not God's choice. Bottom line, no question about it. So what happened in verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him. That wasn't a suggestion. That was a commandment. That was, that was in persistence. Send and bring him for we will not sit down until he comes. Notice those words. When you first walked in, it was customary that you get to sit down. Remember, washing of the feet, sitting down, resting. You probably had something to eat, hospitality. Samuel wasn't messing around. We're all standing right here until each of these boys come prayed by me. <laughs> walk, the, walk the plank here. Let's see what's going on. And none of them were picked. Now Samuel's sitting there going, wait a minute, God told me it was going to be one of the sons. So he knew what God knows. He didn't know. He didn't know how many sons. He just knew that God said it was going to be one of the sons and none of those sons. So that must mean there's got to be some more. Sure enough, there was. The youngest. The one that, that dad thought was insignificant, the youngest. Probably being the youngest, Josephus says he was probably around 10 years old. I, 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 and there was another historian who leaned to more, more like 15. I think he was more closer to the, the, into that definitely puberty, guaranteed puberty age of, of a manhood, called by God in this position. So I kind of leaned toward the more the 15 than the 10. But he could have been 10. But he was young. We're not talking 25, not talking 35 or 45. We're talking a 10 to 15 year old. Insignificant in dad's eyes. He did not, it's not like he was questioning his character or maybe those things. He's just young. Why would, why would you come in here and waste our time? He's, he's, he's busy taking care of the sheep. Which tells you they were not a, a wealthy family. The, the, this king did not come from a wealthy family, etc. They, if they were wealthy, they would have had hired servants taking care of the sheep. No, no, the youngest, they, they were taking care of their own sheep. But dad said, we want to see all your boys. And he, he thought it was no big deal. Why would you pick a 10 to 15 year old? Why would you pick a teenager? Because God says... That's why God can use. Don't, don't put limits on the age. God can use and God can do great things. So Samuel had a problem here. God told him that Jesse had someone. There's going to be a son. It's going to, he's going to be the, the one you're going to anoint. He knew that God's word was true. He knew there was going to be another son of Jesse. He was just waiting to see what was going to be the outcome here. But it reminds me, as I was pondering on this, why did he choose out of all those boys the youngest? You, do, you know. It takes you right to the scripture, does it not? It talks about how God often 
chooses unlikely people to do his work. So that all know that the work that will be done through that man is God's work and not man's work. God gets all the credit. He wants to work in a way that so people regard his servants as they are regarded. Like Samson, I, I, I came up in Judges 16.5. They, they wonder, where was his secret strength from? Where, how did you accomplish that? Because I'm looking at you and I'm like, how and did you get there? I mean, like, you don't have it. anything in the outward appearance to, that lines up with what I think you need to get to, to be, be where you want to be. Because we so many times look in the outward and not look at the heart of a person. Thank God he, God looks at the heart. <laughs> you don't have to be rich to be in leadership. You don't have to have multiple degrees to be in leadership. To do great things for God in anywhere in the ministry and have all the credentials. You just have to have the heart for God. And have a complete broken, surrendered heart for God. Empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And then watch God do great things through your life. And he, God gets all the credit. He, he says to, to Samuel, he's keeping the sheep. But David is the one who's keeping the sheep. He's the one that's going to be greatly anointed here any moment. But he was out keeping the sheep. He was busy taking care of the lowest positions of work. Why? Because David simply just did his job. He was faithful in the small things. In what his dad had told him to do. Leader of the house. The father said, go take care of the sheep. He did the small thing. He just, he just did the work. See, keeping the sheep was a servant's job. Keeping the sheep meant you had time to think out there. And David spent a lot of time looking over the sheep and looking at the glory of God's creation around him. But God built him in a heart to sing about his glory in all the creations. How do we know that? Those four or five different psalms speak to it. But one of them is Psalm 8. Go back and read Psalm 8 or Psalm 19, 1 through 4. You can see what God was working in this young man's heart as out there doing just that labor, that work for God, for his father, for his family. He was doing his things. And God was building in him a heart to sing, to worship of, of God in, in, his, in even his glory. While he's taking, keeping the sheep. Keeping the sheep take a special heart, a special care. It meant you knew how sheep needed the care and help of, uh, to be a good shepherd. You learned that you were a sheep and God was your shepherd. And, in, and doing these, these years of working through the hard things, things that most people would never want to go out there and take care of sheep. That's servant's work. I'm above that. I'm not going to do that kind of work. I'm, I'm only called to do this and, and do that. No, during these years, God built in David. The heart that would sing about the Lord as his shepherd, Psalm 23. See, keeping the sheep meant you had to trust God in the midst of danger. 
in the midst of fear and uncertainty, inconvenience. David had lions and bears and wolves to contend with. He had to protect those sheep with his own life. See, in those days, the country around Bethlehem was not a safe place. There was thugs and gangs of people gathering up to try to rob the people as they were passing by foot. And he was out there amongst all of that. But it's these David's years keeping the sheep. These were not just waiting time, wasting time. These were training times. So many times when we're in the drudgery and doing things that you don't want to do, those are not just wasting your time. That's not just waiting. That's literally training time for you to train them up so your heart would be in line rightly with God. To teach you how to do be faithful in the small things before he raises you up to do greater things for him. David was a great man, a great king over Israel because he never lost his shepherd's heart. How do we know that? Psalm 78, verses 70 and 72 speaks of the connection between David the king and David the shepherd. He never lost sight of where he came from and what God was, had done in, in and through his life. Verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. Ruddy, in the if you look, language you look it up, appears that he was a redhead. He had probably at least a minimum of light complexions, and, and, uh, and, and, but he had bright, with bright eyes and good looking. And the, the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Oh, that must have been an interesting, humbling moment for the brothers, wondering what's going on. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David at that day, that moment, from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. He, he, he did what he was supposed to do. He, he was heading back home. So when you look at the physical description of David, his fair complexion, light complexion, or at least a, you know, considered attractive in that culture, but he had bright eyes which speak of vitality and intelligence. David was also good looking. He had a pleasant appearance. Didn't talk about being tall and physical and, and, and manly looking, as they say. He didn't have the, the poster child, like I saw, a poster kind of looking, this is the leader of our king, you know, kind of look. It, he had that look where you, you look at him and go, he's king? That's your king? Doesn't even fit into the, doesn't even fit the clothes. And I mean, are you sure that's your king? The one that's going to go into battle and lead you into battle. That 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 guy. Yes. See, it's interesting. By all outward appearances, David's 
seven brothers seemed to be better material for royalty. But David was the one that God called, anointed, selected, will equip, has been preparing, will prepare to be king. David was a shepherd, but there was a lot of shepherds out there. Why him? David was, was good looking, but so there were a lot of good looking guys. Why not them? David was young, but there was plenty of young men God could have chosen. Why David? Well, God gives us the answer. He says God is special. How do we see it in verse 14 of, of chapter 13 of 1 of, of Samuel? 1 Samuel 13, 14. It says the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord had commanded him to be commander over his people. What made David the one out of all the other ones? Was that he was a man after God's own heart. Period. God's choice. God's choice of David shows that he, we don't have to quit our jobs and enter into full-time ministry to be people that God's can use because you have your heart is right with God. We don't need to be famous or prominent to be people after God's own heart. We don't need to be respected and even liked by others to be people after God's own heart. We don't need status to be able to be after God's own heart. We don't have to have certain influences or power or education, approval of men, or have already have great responsibilities to be people after God's own heart. Where did David get this heart from? Where did it start so early on a young man's life? Where did that start, that, 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 that foundation being built in him? Well, if you think about it, as you think, kind of ponder on how did he get to be a 10, 15-year-old man with a heart after God? Who, who was training him up according to the ways of God? Because it doesn't just happen. The heart goes to the chaos, goes dark. How did he go to the light? How did he grow? Who, who influenced him? Obviously, from the time spent with the Lord, he, he changed. He was, God was revealing somehow, some way. But someone started him on this path. David says nothing in the scripture about his father. But twice in the Psalms, Psalm 86, 16, and Psalm 116, 16, he refers to his mother as a maidservant of the Lord. Mothers, huge impact on getting your son's and your daughter's on the right path from the very beginning. So it probably was David's godly mother who poured, in her, her, poured her heart and love and devotion of the Lord into him and gave him a foundation to build on his own walk with the Lord out there being a shepherd. He's much like who in the New Testament? Timothy. Mother and grandmother poured into him 
And God then brought him under the wings of Paul to, to help him to mature and grow. We see that in 2 Timothy 1.5. But Samuel was glad right there to take that horn of oil and anoint him in the midst of his brothers. But it's interesting as we continue here. I don't think they fully understood what was the purpose and reason for it. Did the brothers and Jesse really understand what was happening here? Or were only God and Samuel knew exactly what was happening here? But we do know that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. The real anointing happened when the Holy Spirit came upon David. Not the oil. The oil on the head was just a sign of this inward reality that was happening. That God was pouring the, His Spirit upon him. Remember in the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon and empowered we in the New Testament, the Spirit of God comes in and empowers within. The Spirit comes in. But notice Samuel just moved on. He just literally, when he was done, he was like, I'm done here. And he went back to, to Ramah. That must have been an awkward, as they read it over and over, that must have been a really awkward scene. Like, David's like the little, you know, the teenager. Like, what do I do now? Like, what does this all mean? Why are you anointing me? Why, what does that mean? And what do you mean the Holy Spirit come to, you know, anything? I mean, you just have to think and put it in your perspective there. David's name never showed up in the scriptures. The first mention of the name of David in the book of 1 Samuel is 1613. He'd been referred to prophetically in, in chapter 13 and four, verse 14 and chapter 15 and verse 28. But his name is now finally coming out, which means beloved and loved one. And it's coming out here. And David will become one of the greatest men of the Bible mentioned more than a thousand times in the pages of the scriptures. More than Abraham, more than Moses. More than any mere man in the New Testament. He wasn't known. There's no, there's no accident that Jesus wasn't known as the son of Abraham or the followers of Moses. But Jesus was referred to as the son of David. Everything changes. Here in chapter 16 and 17 are two pivotal chapters of the, of, the, of the story here in 1 Samuel. Verse 14, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's, a, that's not a good thing. And what happened when the Spirit of God left Saul? A distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Where did that distressing spirit come from? From the Lord. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here because it troubled him. See, so here the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. 
The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, but then from the day forward for Saul, the Spirit was not with him. David was anointed to do great things and empowered to do great things in equipping him and getting prepared for kingship. Saul, distressing spirit came upon him. Man full of anxiety. Stressed out. If God is all good, why did he send a distressing spirit upon Saul? Did you think about that? See, there's two senses in which God can send something. He may send something in the active sense, or he may step aside something and allow something from a passive sense. God never, and from an actively perspective or sense, God never initiates or performs evil. Never. He cannot. He is the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, James 1.17. So from an active perspective, he cannot take something evil and perform something evil, initiate something evil upon. He cannot do that. Passively, though, God may withdraw his hand of protection and therefore allow the evil to come without being the source of the evil itself. He's anointed the spirits upon him. The enemy, the, the demonic forces cannot touch the man. But as soon as he says, okay, you want nothing to do with me? You've rebelled and you went against me. You're not going to do what I, okay, I'm lift my spirit upon you. I step back. You know Satan is like, let me at him. Just like Job. God protect Job. He said, you can do a certain part. But at some point, there was boundary God didn't allow over to, to take his life. So passively, God stepped aside because the Spirit of God is no longer upon Saul. And distressing spirit came upon him. This meant Saul lost his spiritual protection and covering. This is why the continual presence of the Holy Spirit for all Christians today is such a comfort. It's such a comfort for you and I. Because we have the continual presence of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to fear that God will take the Holy Spirit from us when we have messed up. We see that in Romans 8 verses 9 through 11. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Go back and read Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. If you're dealing with challenges and you think the Lord has left you, go back and look. The Spirit cannot leave you. The Spirit has dwelled within you and sealed you for eternity. As a believer, you can grieve the Spirit so the Spirit doesn't move and empower you to do these things. And He's gone quiet on you because you've rebelled. And, and you need to come to back to repentance. You need to confess your sin and repent of that sin so that you will no longer grieve the Spirit. But the Spirit will not leave you. He sealed you for eternity. He lives within you. Go back 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19-20. Read that. Get that sure in your head. The Spirit of God has not left you. 
Just check your heart. Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, is there anything not right with you? Am I rebelling against you? Am I heart's not right? My attitude's not right? What am I grieving you? I want to acknowledge it. You bring it to memory. I want to acknowledge it, repent of it. I need to change, Lord, because I do not want to grieve the Spirit. But know here, a distressing spirit from the Lord, that means... Perhaps this was to judge Saul's past wickedness and rebellion against the Holy Spirit's guidance. There's consequences for your rebellion. Saul, there was a consequence. There may be an example of God's giving Saul over to his sins, too. You're, you're just going, 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 just like Pharaoh, maybe. You're going down this path. I'm just going to let you turn you over to your sin. Saul clearly had the Spirit of the Lord upon him at one time. We saw that back in 1 Samuel 10.10. But as he became from humble to be very proud and and went from, I I can't believe I could even do this, to now rebellious against God and think he's in complete control, he was resisting the Holy Spirit that was upon him, empowering him to be able to do the work. He told the Holy Spirit enough, no, 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 go away, go away. I don't need you, I don't need you, I'm going to do my own thing. You tell the Holy Spirit long enough, and Saul's now facing the consequences or the justice. See, Saul, if you had asked him what he was doing, there was a consequence, a price to pay for that, he would have never known that. He would have never even acknowledged it. He would never realize the price to pay when the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. Matter of fact, Saul would probably think that I would be freer if I didn't have the Holy Spirit constantly convicting me and and correcting me and correcting my changes. I could be more freer if I didn't have all these reminders of the things of God and the people of God. If I could away from his people, away from his word, away from everything, I would be freer in my life. To do the things without the Spirit of the Lord bugging me, convicting me. And that's the trick of the lie of the enemy. The enemy will always tell you, you'd be freer. You'd be be much happier if you just get away from all this, 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 this stuff of religion. You can do religion with God however you want to and do a nice little neat package deal, you know, and I'll do it my way kind of moment with God, and I'll, I'll be much happier. I don't have to deal with God's people. I don't have to deal with the convictions. Of, I'll be just doing my own thing. And what that is is a trick of the enemy because he didn't realize he would be in more bondage than ever before because now a distressing spirit will be troubling him in his life. He could have repented. He could have decided not to keep going down this path. But the pride was so bad, he says, no, if I turn around and come back and repent, then what are people going to think? That's how the enemy works. Don't do that. 
You know, people are going to think if you acknowledge you're wrong and you repent and you turn around and come back and start fresh again. No, don't do that. People are, what are people going to think? That's just the trick of the enemy. It takes down many prideful men. He wasn't past the, path, the place of repentance or restoration. It was up to him to receive God's correction and respond with a broken, repentant heart before the Lord. But he didn't, so now it becomes the distressing spirit upon, upon him. I find being in the medical world, many people in mental hospitals today I think really suffer from spiritual problems. I mean, it's, it's wrong to assume that every case of mental distress is spiritual because there are chemical imbalances. I recognize that. And I understand there's physiological problems. Those are real in this fallen world. I, I, I understand that. But I think there's, certain, there's a certain amount that they're dealing with distressing spirits because they're not walking with God. They've allowed they open themselves up to demonic forces and things the way they, they, they live their lives. And it can be changed. It could be, it can, it, they could just come to the Lord and get saved, be set free from that, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And maybe if it's chemical imbalance or psychological problems and other things that need to be, God can, God can heal that too. Just need to ask and believe by faith. Verse 15, And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. So it was very obvious. People can see it on the outside of him that he was distressed. There was a, they called it out, right? Let your master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you. And you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. So the... Obviously, Saul's servants clearly can see the boss is absolutely as a as a spirit of distressing spirit upon him. He must have been an angry man, just just losing it. But it wasn't seemed to be obvious to Saul. Many times, people don't who are going through it don't see it, or at least will not admit it. But oh, everyone around them can see it. And they called it out and said, you, you need to have someone come in here and he needs to help you here. Because you're, in this case, his spiritual condition was far more apparent to others than in himself in this case. So his advisors, his servants advised him to find what we would call a worship leader today or someone to help you, to lead you, to, to, to calm you through music here. They will seek out a man who can usually play the music or bring that love and the peace and the power of God to Saul. You need someone to calm down this rage that's going on in your life. 
This distress that's coming about. You've got to find someone. Let's play music. Let's get this music to maybe a more loving environment here because it's not too loving. More peaceful because it's not peaceful right now. And, 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 and God has come to, to help you. They were basically saying, find someone who can lead you into worshiping God. It was so important to seek out a man to do this work. God created music and gave it for the capacity to touch people with great power. But don't get me wrong. Music can be used for great good or for great evil. Because it's that powerful. It communicates to the inner being of a person that powerfully. That's why you have to be very careful of the type of music you listen to. Remember, Saul received the Spirit of the Lord in the presence of music, if you remember back in 1 Samuel 10.10. Perhaps the servants are trying to recreate what started well with this man to try to bring him back to that. Perhaps it was an effort to recreate that experience again. Hey, you were in good space back here in your life, and now you're in complete distress here, and and a spirit of distress. It is affecting everyone in this this distressing spirit you have, and we need to bring you back to the music to try to calm your soul. Why do you not think we come here to sit and worship God? You're, so many people are so anxiety-filled, and, and, and many people could come in here and not be saved at all, and they don't even know why they're just in turmoil. Or if you're saved and you have some really difficult things going on in life, we come and we sit and the music ministers to our soul. Even if you're not in a bad space and you're in a great space filled with joy and just, you're just, you were singing all the top of your lungs all the way here that mo- on Sunday morning. And you come in here and you just want to now do it collectively with your brothers and sisters as God commanded us to do. It's to worship in one voice. To let those sweet smelling aroma rise up. So what happened? Verse 18. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person. And the Lord is with him. So he's described this David pretty pretty well here. He, he, you know, he's, 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 okay, let's do a search party here and let's figure out who do you know who can play music? Who have, have we seen? And, and is he going to be a good representative? Would he, you know, will the king even accept him? And uh, we got to find this guy. What is it? What is his resume? You know, the kind of thing. Well, the guy, look, I, I see the guy, a son of Jesse's. Obviously, he's old enough to be a man of valor now, a man of war. He's, he's, he's prudent in speech. Look at all those characteristics, handsome, and, and, and the Lord is with him. Now, he, they, people are recognizing God is empowering. He's empowered by the, the Spirit of God. But look at the qualifications for him before they take him into the king. He's skillfully playing. David needed skill to lead Saul in worship and to minister to him in music. You have to have that skill. God had to build that skill into someone to be able to do that. That just doesn't just happen. The technical quality of his music was important. 
But the key is the heart matters. So, so you can be technically all you want with music. But if your heart is not right, it means nothing. doesn't mean you have to be so skilled that you're a versioso and you're, you're, you're singing opera and you're singing every, every kind of thing and you're playing 20 instruments. That's not what God is saying here. But it does mean that you cannot tolerate a too casual, unconcerned, lazy, we don't really need to practice kind of attitude. Let's just wing it up there. That's not what God's calling his people to do to, to lead his people to worship. They need to be skillful in playing. It reflects an attitude as much as it reflects ability. And he's a mighty man of valor, a man of war. David needed that character of a warrior effectively to lead Saul in worship and to minister to him in music. You have to understand, worship ministry is a constant battleground. A constant battleground. There's always seems to often always be conflicts and contentions and surrounding worship ministry. And if someone isn't equipped and ready for spiritual warfare, they will probably be spiritually and emotionally injured in the worship ministry and probably would wound others in the process. So much what makes a person a good musician, what's another term, a good, a good artist, goes against what it means to have a good worship ministry. Because if you look at the artists today, and these good musicians that are out there, it's all about ego, man. It's all about attention and doing things to get more prominence and attentions and all these followings and, and you're just like, hey, let's get our name out there and let's do this. And if we do this kind of marketing angle and stuff, let's get our this and let's get our... It's always about getting your stuff out. That, works, that, that, that kind of attention works against effective congregational worship. That's not how you do congregational worship. That doesn't how you lead God's people is through spotlights and prominence and attentions and all kinds of things. Look at the, the, the prudent in speech. David needed to speak wisely, effectively. He could not be in a position of a leadership as he will be placed in, in with Saul, if he could not effectively lead Saul into worship and to minister to him in music. So he had to have that characteristic that God had already prepared for him to have that prudent speech. God had already given him that skillful ability to skillfully play. He, God had already given him to be a man of valor and a man of war that he could be respected in and be able to, because it could be a battleground. It's going to be absolutely challenging every time he's working with Saul because he's dealing with a man who's in distress. They don't usually go well. People in distress doesn't usually receive well and accept well and fight, take directions well. So it's always a spiritual battleground. They're always fighting. They're always butting heads with you. So he, God had to prepare him for Saul. 
He had to be prudent in speech. Good worship ministry needs a lot of diplomacy. <laughs> Everyone has their own opinion on music and suggestions, and they're always coming against the worship team around that subject matter. Like everyone has an expert in the music, and they're going to tell the people who are leading you in worship that you, they knew, knew no better. Effective worship leaders know when to speak and when to be quiet on and around the team, the congregation, and trying to be prudent, be wise with what is said and not said. And God has prepared David to do that with Saul. He was a handsome person. David had a good-looking young man. Effective worship leader doesn't need to be a fashion model and, and, and picture perfect from the, the you know, GQ magazine of men. Or, you know, that's not what you're looking for, but that's what the, the church today is all looking for certain looks on their worship leaders and worship teams to, to you know, you've got to be like and fill in the blank with some of these big names. No, that's not what he's saying here. The answer person is not the part. But their appearance is important because they need to present themselves so as to be invisible is his point. Worship teams are to be invisible. They're not to draw attention to themselves. Anyone comes between you and God in worshiping is in deep trouble. So the man that God is raising up cannot take the place of God or distract people from coming to God in their form of worship. You know, it just, their appearance, yes, the physical outward appearance can call attention to themselves and that can't happen. And you know, finally, the Lord is with him. Is God in this? Has God called this man to do this work? Yes. This is the most important attribute of all of those. The other measures will grow and develop in time. Those don't have to be up front. They will grow in time. The most important in this subject matter here is the fact that though is the Lord with him in doing this work. It means that they are called by God, submitting to God, surrender to God, humbled to God, submitting to whatever leadership the Lord has placed over them to follow that leader, that senior pastor in regards to leading the congregation. In this case, God is calling Saul to make sure that he's following God. But he also, again, Samuel came in and anointed. So there was, a, there was some God using Samuel in some form or fashion in that to help that transition. But there's a, that, that person who's coming in has to be led. And finally here, verse 19 through 23. Then, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, and set them by his son David to and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him. And he loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. So Saul immediately accepted this young man, David. 
and became the armor bearer. If you remember, the armor bearer is you would carry the armor. You're always with him. You're the second-hand man. You never left his side. You, you were always with him. And when you went into battle, then you helped even fight war. So he, he, he had everything. He was a, perfect what God wanted to use. And then Saul sent to Jesse saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp. Now, remember, it's not the big old harp you think you can try to, okay, how do we roll that around? No, it was like a guitar, right? It was a, a small lyre, and, and they believe in it. It was just, it was like a, guitar, a small guitar kind of a deal, and he would carry it with him. It was small enough, and he played it with his hand. And then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Be beautiful picture, right? You're right there with your boss nonstop, the leader, nonstop, right there, and always with him, always watching every, every word he says, everything. You have to be responsive, obedient. He's right there. The distressing spirit comes upon him. He's going, not a good place to be. The servants are probably scattering, and they're like going, David, start strumming, man. <laughs> start doing quickly. Get the music going, man, because this is not going to be good. He starts playing. He brings God into the situation, and that distressing spirit leaves. When God comes in, evilness leaves. When God comes in, evilness leaves. The sooner we go to God, the sooner we get God into that situation, that circumstance, that distressing, that moment of fear, anxieties and stuff, the sooner we get God in. Even using God's music, music with God's words in it, to play, to minister to your soul, to let that moment pass. See? Send me your son, David. What do you mean, send me your son? Where's, where's David? Who is with the sheep? Samuel anoints David in front of his dad and his brothers. And there goes Samuel. And you're sitting there going, what do you do now? Look what happened. David just didn't know what to do next. There was no direction by anybody. God didn't give Samuel to tell him what to do next. So what did he do? He went right back to, to serving and taking care of the sheep. It's a good point here. Because when you're sitting there and he's been anointed and all this is going on and something significant happened, and, it, and it, maybe I don't fully understand the significance of what's just going place and anointed with God, all I know is I'm going to go back and do what I know I'm supposed to do and take care of dad's sheep. I've got to take care of sheep. That's my job. I'm going to go do that. Why? Because he's waiting. He doesn't maybe even know this, but sometimes God calls you to do something for him, and it takes time before God actually puts you in a position to do it. In this case, he waited for God's timing to implement David to be his new king. He had to wait. There was a gap. There wasn't even a gap. And I had to ponder on it this week. I was like, Lord, what is some of the example in my own life? What, when did you say something to me and there was a gap before you actually used me to starting this ministry? 
There was years of gap between when God said, you're going to go from California to New York, and then versus actually getting to New York and starting it. There was a gap that God had to, why? And during that period of gap, he was preparing me to be ready to start the ministry. It was a lot longer than I ever thought it would be. But I had a lot of changes, I, I, clearly, to get prepared to take on a responsibility to what God wanted me to do to start a new ministry. But was it worth it? Yes, hindsight, when you look back, I was like, I'm glad I didn't go from California right to New York. <laughs> it probably wouldn't have gone well. So I'm thankful for God to preparing in that time between when he called you and then the time that he actually put you in place to do. See, David did not have to manipulate his way into the palace. I'm anointed to be king. How do I get into the thing and take over the kingship? How is this all going to work? Should I go here? Do I do this? Do I? No. God will work out the details. And look what happens. They went and got him and brought him into the palace. Got him right next to the king. Right next to the king to do what? To see how a palace works. To see how a kingship works. See what the kings do on a daily day basis. He, he had no clue what it means to be a king. And now God brought him right next to the man who he was going to replace and learned everything he needed to do. What to do and what not to do by just being right there and having to put up with all of the distressing spiritual moments and the really difficult times and I can't believe I'm here and can I get out of here? No, God was put him right there to prepare him to be king. He would have never come up with that idea. Samuel didn't come up with that idea. If you let God do the work, it'll be far greater to accomplish his purpose in your life then you will ever try to figure it out and take try to take the reins and do it yourself and figure this out no you got to let god even take you through the difficult times cuz that's prep, prep, that's training time that's equipping time to do what god's called you to do play the harp david Play the harp. That's what I've called you to do, David. Until I make you king. I've already made you king. But the, the position's coming. May we trust God. May we trust God in with our lives. Father, we thank you and praise you for your, for your grace and your mercy upon our lives, Lord.